All right, well, good morning, everybody. Um, this is the, I guess, the second week, the second lesson of a uh, little short series on the doctrines of Scripture. Um, today, we are going to talk about, um, as you can see, inspiration, which we're going to try to hit. We tried to hit last week, but we ran out of time. Uh, but we're going to hit inspiration for a few minutes, and then we're going to talk about the quote-unquote lost Scriptures. Now, originally, what I wanted to talk about... Um, this week was the Apocrypha, which is, um, as you know, uh, the Catholics uh, include, you know, a bunch of books from the, the Apocrypha in their, in their Bible. We don't recognize them as scripture, and so what I wanted to do was kind of talk about that a little bit. Um, but what happened was we had an elder meeting on Tuesday, and I pitched to the guys, hey, I want to teach a class this summer on the inter, intertestamental period, and they all gave me a thumbs up, so I got excited, ordered a bunch of books, and then the worst thing happened, they came in. So I, I, so I got a little bit distracted and didn't get, get, get my Apocrypha slides um, set up in time. So, so today what we're, we're going to talk about is inspiration, and then we're going to talk about the lost, quote-unquote, lost scriptures, and you'll understand um, why I'm so big on the, the, the quotes here in just a, just a few minutes. So let's pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, once again, thank you for this morning. Thank you for uh, bringing us together and giving us the opportunity to, uh, to study uh, your word. Uh, not so much be in your word, but talk about, about your word, um, which uh, is um, important for believers to understand what it is that, that, that we're looking at. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for uh, revealing uh, your divine will and your divine character um, in, in Scripture. And we, um, we just thank you for your grace uh, that you've given us so that um, we may come together and, and study it. Father, uh, we dedicate this time to you, um, compel it to be you know, glorifying to you in, in every way. Uh, we love you, we trust you, help us to glorify you in everything that we do. For all these things in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Now that Jeremy's here, we can get started. All right, so last week, very quickly, we'll go th- uh, we talked about the four attributes of Scripture. Now, who, um, I don't have Monica to pick on, so I'm going to have to figure out somebody else to pick on. Um, so who, can, who remembers any of the four attributes of Scripture? Pers- well, we don't use that word. <laughs> Pers- perspicuity, what does that mean? Clarity, right? So, so no word is less perspicuous than the word perspicuity. So, um, so yeah, clarity is the, is the first one. And the, important, the importance of, of the clarity of Scripture is that, you know, we don't have to have a holy man, basically, to, um, to, uh, to interpret it for us. Uh, we, we're, we're given the Scriptures, and we're, a, you know, a human being is able to understand them um, with the uh, the guidance of the of the Holy Spirit. So there's three more. You else want to throw one out? Authority, authority very good. That's actually the next one. Uh, the authority of Scripture. Uh, uh, scripture is written in such a way. Uh, the authority of Scripture says that uh, Scripture is written so that to uh, disobey or disbelieve any part of Scripture is to uh, disobey or disbelieve God Himself. So, um, 
authority carries divine, um, the, the doctrine of authority says that scripture carries divine authority, the very authority of God within its pages. Two more. Necessity. Very good. Necessity, the necessity of scripture. In other words, we, uh, scripture is required to, to know God in a, and have communion with him. Now, we may know God through general revelation by looking out at the, the heavens and looking at nature. Uh, we can learn certain things about God, but that's very limited. We can't know him personally uh, through nature. We have to have his revelation in, in divine scripture in order to have, you could call it a saving relationship with him. One last one. Who's got it? So, sufficiency of scripture. Yeah. So sufficiency. Sufficiency is um, the idea that, uh, that Scripture provides all that we need to know in order to have a relationship with Christ. It's all the information. And then we need to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit and then and live that out in, in communion with him. Okay? So those are the four attributes of Scripture classically you know, defined for the last several hundred years. Now, today we're going to talk about inspiration. Um, and if I think I, I'm trying to remember, I put these together a few weeks ago. I'm pretty sure these are uh, just straight out quotes from our statement of faith on the, um, uh, you can look on our website if you're, if you're interested. But uh, the, Holy, the Holy Spirit influenced human authors to write exactly what he wanted them to write. Instead of merely dictating words to them, God worked through their unique personalities and circumstances. Scripture is therefore both fully human and fully divine. Okay? And so the idea there is that God did not dictate to Paul what Paul was to write down. God inspired Paul to write down using Paul's own experiences, personality, things of that nature. And so when you, when you read Paul, and then you read, say, John, especially the, the, the letters of John, they read two radically different ways. Paul, what does he do? Like in the opening um, of, say, Ephesians, you have like one or two sentences that, that have about 20 ideas in them. You know, so you have, you know, and essentially, I think if I remember correctly, in Ephesians uh, 3 through 14, I think if I remember correctly, it's two, two sentences, and it, I mean, you get into the Trinity, you get into the various aspects of salvation. I mean, he just kind of goes, you know, I wouldn't say rambles, but he, it's like he, he's very fluid with one big, big sentence. Then you look at John, and, um, his is very simple. His ideas are very simple, and he puts them out there, and it's one idea, and then the next idea, and then the next idea. So you see the personalities of those two men coming out in, uh, in the way that they wrote. So, um, so inspiration is not you know, dictation. It's actually both fully human and fully divine, and we're going to drill down on this in just a few minutes. Let's see. Inspiration only applies to the writings not the authors. It cannot be reduced to human insight or to um, heightened states of consciousness of, of any kind. And so if you talk to a Muslim, you, uh, Muhammad essentially went into a cave, had some kind of, you know, um, 
heightened sense of, of um, awareness of God. And then the, the angel Gabriel dictated the Quran to him. So the, the, the Muslims have a radically different idea of inspiration than we do. What they believe is that the words of the Quran were eternal, and then they were basically brought in and dictated to, uh, to Muhammad, and then Muhammad just wrote them down, and, and then um, you know, there's, no per, there's no personality in, in Muhammad. Now, I think what happened is he went into a cave and inhaled a bunch of methane and tripped out on a, you know, a chemical trip, basically, a drug trip, and, and saw, saw an angel, so to speak, so... All right, uh, but it apply, applies only to um, the writings, not the authors themselves. So not everything that a, uh, a writer, a New Testament writer would have said uh, would be considered scripture or inspired. Last one, the whole of scripture and all its parts down to the very words of the original were given by divine inspiration. The inspiration of Scripture cannot be rightly affirmed of the whole without the parts or uh, some parts but not the whole. Now, a problem that we run into here with our liberal friends, and again, when I say liberal, I don't mean that in a political sense. I mean that in a, in a religious sense. Essentially, a liberal theologian is somebody who, if you really want to boil it down, they deny the inerrancy and the inspiration of Scripture. And so... When you talk to, if you ask yourself, how is it that um, these liberal churches can say that they believe the Bible, but at the same time, they do things that are very contrary to its teachings? And so, for example, if, if you're talking about, say, um, uh, women as elders, I know it's a sensitive subject, but it's a very biblical subject, so women as elders, well, what they'll say is, Paul when he wrote that about um, you know, elders being men or, or, or uh, wives submitting to their husbands, that that's when he was still a Pharisee. That was still the beginning of his, his walk with Christ, and he hadn't learned that those things are wrong yet. So when he wrote those in those letters, then he was still very Pharisaical. But his later letters, we need to, uh, we need to let those override his earlier letters and and so um, they, they, they negate, they put scripture against scripture, basically. And they, they negate some of the clear teachings of Paul that they say is, quote unquote, from his earlier, earlier writings, if they even believe that Paul wrote them to begin with. And so in that way, they divide scripture and they say some of it's inspired and some of it's not. And so the question is, who has the right to define what's inspired and what's not? God. So if you're defining what is inspired and what's not, then you're putting yourself in, in the place of God, essentially. All right. So going back to that first um, paragraph that you guys can't read now, um, it says, uh, Scripture is therefore fully human and fully divine. Now, what I want to talk about with this is how does that work? And the simple answer is, I, I don't really know. <laughs> um, I know that in, in um, one of the later chapters of Acts, when Paul is on a, a ship in the Mediterranean and there's a storm, 
the uh, uh, Luke says that the the ship was being driven by the wind, or carried along by the by the wind, and so the idea there is that the uh, the wind is driving the ship, but still the ship the the sailors on the ship are not just sleeping. They're actually doing what they need to do in order to kind of keep the ship upright and that sort of thing. Well, the same terminology is used, the same word is used to describe the writing of Scripture, that the, the men were carried along by the Spirit in, in writing Scripture. And so the analogy there is you can think of the ship in the storm as well as the writers writing, writing Scripture. So there's an idea that there's both a, a human and a, and a divine aspect to it, or I should say fully human and, and, and fully divine. So what I want to do is a lot of y'all are going to have, be familiar with the exercise we're about to go through, and, but we do it for um, another doctrine, and it's the doctrine of uh, human responsibility and divine sovereignty. We're not going to talk about that today, but we're, we're going to talk about divine inspiration. So bear with me just for a few minutes, okay? Um, but before we get to that, what I want to do is talk about a doctrine that is not controversial in the least. And that's the, at least around Orthodox Christians, and that is the, the, the nature of Christ, or I should say the dual natures of Christ, okay? So if we look at this, this line here, on the left you have um, the idea that there is uh, all human and no divine, and on the very far right we have all divine, no human, okay? So my question is... Um, where is Mallory on this line? Where would she be? Far, far left. Okay, that's you and I, right? What's that? She has the Holy Spirit in her heart. Yeah, she has the Holy Spirit, but she's not the Holy Spirit, right? Yeah. So she's, so she's fully human um, and not divine, right? So where would, uh, where would the Holy Spirit be? Or where would uh, God the Father be? On, on the far right. Now, here's the question. Where would Jesus be? Would not be in the middle, right? He, he, kind of, you think of it as both places. Um, but what would be in the middle? If, it, if there's something in the middle, what would it be? Like Hercules or Percy Jackson, right? Okay. For the more modern audiences, we've got to go to Percy Jackson. Okay, so, so what does that mean? It means they're... 50% human, 50% divine. And yes, I know they're fictional characters. Okay. Uh, so, so with Jesus, what do we do here? How do we put him, how does this line apply to him? Well, it doesn't. And so what you have to do is you have to think differently. Because in our world, uh, hu humanity and divinity are mutually exclusive. You're one or the other. You're not both. That's the way we normally think, and that's normally reality. But in this case, when you're talking about Christ, this one, this one example in anything that's ever existed is we find that divinity is not uh, mutually exclusive from humanity. Okay, so now let, let's let's go through the same exercise. Where's Mallory on this? So you can see. Just to explain, the bottom um, axis is uh, humanity, and the vertical axis is, is divine. So where's Mallory? Well, he 
lower right-hand corner, okay? So where would the, the God the Father or the Holy Spirit be? Upper left. Upper left, okay? Now where's Percy Jackson and, and Hercules, right? They're, you go over halfway and you go up halfway and they're, they're right in the middle, okay? Now where's Christ? Top right corner. Fully human, go all the way over. Fully divine, go all the way up, okay? So if we think of the dual natures of Christ or the hypostatic union, we think about it in this way, then it kind of helps us to understand a little bit of who he is. Not fully, um, but understand a little bit of who he is. Now, we can take the same exercise. We can talk about inspiration, the authorship of the Bible. So on the far left, you have Jaws. I don't know why that popped into my head. Jaws or Harry Potter. Let's go with Harry Potter. Where's Harry Potter on this? All the way to the left, right? That's natural talent or Shakespeare. A lot of people say Shakespeare was inspired. Well, he had a high level, uh, high degree of proficiency, and so that's where he would be. Uh, So no human authorship over on the far right. Well, what we'd have to do is I'll I'll say... um, it's not true, but it's what the Muslims would claim that the Quran would be on the far right. Their doctrine of, of quote-unquote inspiration or dictation would be on the far right. And then what would be in the middle? I don't really know of anything. It's some kind of human divine cooperation where it's 50-50. But if we go to this, then as you can see, we can step through it, and we end up with biblical interpretation is like that. So it's fully human, and it's fully divine. And it's something that it's important that we get our, our minds around that, all right? All right, so now let's talk about the lost scriptures. Um, so does anybody here ever, has anybody ever here, here ever made the mistake of turning on the History Channel anytime, anywhere around Easter? Because what happens? You... You flip it over there, and there's some scholar sitting there in a tweed jacket and smoking a pipe, and they're in a, they have a bunch of books behind them, so you know they're really smart. And they wear glasses, so you know they're even smarter. And what are they doing? They're commenting on you know, these lost scriptures, how um, if you roll back the clock 2,000 years, there was not one Christianity. There was Christianities, and the key word is uh, diversity. So there was all kinds of thoughts about Christ. And what happened was what we currently think of as Orthodox Christianity happened to win out. And you could even say that uh, the ones that won began to oppress uh, the other ones and, and got rid of their scriptures. And so those scriptures were lost. Oh, until you know the 20th century when we, we found them and unearthed them and then began to uh, enlighten modern audiences um, with stuff that hasn't, hasn't been gone, or things that people haven't read for, for, for 2,000 years. And if you really want your Bible to be complete, then you need to take these Gospels and you need to insert them in uh, probably between John and, and Acts. Okay? Um, it, it's, it's a total travesty. But when you evangelize and you're, you're talking to people, um, having spiritual conversations, 
this, this subject pops up over and over and over again. And so as we go through this, um, I'm not trying to give you a bunch of factoids or a bunch of things to memorize or study. There's going to be no quiz next week. Um, it's just having a basic understanding in terms of general concepts of what's going on is, is really what we're going for. But that said, I am going to kind of give you some specifics. And so what this does is this helps us to understand that not only are these things, they say they're lost, they weren't lost, they were flushed, okay? Um, and they, or they were lost for a reason because they weren't read. They weren't widely propagated, and they're certainly not Christian. And they were, by the way, they were written very late, but we'll talk about that in a minute too. So the first book that I want to talk about, it was uh, in the mid-80s, 1985, the year I graduated high school, um, they had this thing kicked off called the Jesus Seminar, and they brought together 50 scholars, and they brought together, um, uh, I think there was like 100 lay people, and they had these meetings, and they stepped through the, the Gospels, um, all the words of Jesus, basically, and what they did, the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels, and they, had, uh, they each had uh, beads. They had a, a black one. Um, actually, I'll explain the beads here in a minute because I've got a, I got a chart for that. But what these folks do is they, um, they deny the, they actually deny the existence of the supernatural. They're materialists, they're naturalists, okay? And what they're doing is they're going in and they're uh, analyzing uh, scripture without believing in God. And then they're propagating this idea that Jesus didn't really say what we read in our, in our gospels. Okay. Oh, and by the way, there's another gospel that we need to, to add to it. We'll talk about that in a minute. They always put priority to the non-canonical gospels. In, the, in other words, these ones that, these works that were lost, they actually give them priority over the four that we have. It's, it's infuriating, it's sad, it's, it's ridiculous. And they insist that um, Jesus must adhere to their own arbitrary desires and conventions, so they have these, these ideas about what Jesus was supposed to be like, and so anything in the Gospels that um, contradicts that uh, can't, can't, be, can't be legit, can't be historical. And so their conclusion is that we can't really trust anything in the New Testament unless it suits our fancy. So here's what the, the colors of the beads. They each, each person had four beads, and what they would do is they would read a, a piece of scripture, and then they would drop in a, a, a red, pink, gray, or black bead. Okay, depending on whether Jesus undoubtedly said it, Jesus probably said it, Jesus didn't say it, and Jesus didn't say any, or Jesus didn't say anything like this. Okay, came from a different tradition. So here's the here's the book. It's uh, the five Gospels, um, and it's interesting that the subtitle is "What Did Jesus Really Say?" And I think that they should have called it um, "Did Jesus Really Say?" because they would be basically repeating their father, Satan, from, from the garden, okay? So I'm going to pass this around so that you can kind of flip through it. And one thing you'll notice as an example, I took this picture this morning. Um, this is uh, Matthew 6, 5. starts in Matthew 6, 5. It's the Lord's Prayer. And you can see here <laughs> the color red 
uh, shows you the only words that they're saying that Jesus absolutely said. So in the entire Lord's Prayer, how many words did Jesus absolutely say? Two. He said, our Father. But then guess what? In the heavens is black. He did not say that. So if you want to know, so then the pink is, yeah, he probably said something like it. But notice here, notice what he does here. Well, what they do here, they take away in the heavens, they take enact your will on earth as you do in heaven, and they get rid of, uh, but rescue us from the evil one. They don't believe in Satan, they don't believe in God, they don't believe in heaven. And with those presuppositions, how do you expect them, how can anyone expect them to land on anything in Scripture? Well, these guys are very influential. If you've ever heard of Robert Funk, um, Shelby Spong, John Dominic Crossan. I mean, there's a bunch of them. Um, and these are the guys that are talking to your, maybe your kids, your friends, whatever, on the History Channel. And they're writing the, the textbooks that are being used in universities across the, across the world. Okay, another one, Da Vinci Code. Who, who's read or seen the Da Vinci Code? Okay. I, I read this two or th- maybe two years after I became a Christian. Um, I came to Christ in 04. Uh, da Vinci was hot right around then. And ugh. I mean, you go into Barnes and Noble, and it's like they had their own section on debunking the Da Vinci Code. I mean, it was quite a phenomenon. But and I forgot to include this quote. I knew I forgot something this morning. Um, so what happened was, you know, the, the question is, why all the hoopla over a fictional book? Well, Dan Brown is a genius, or somebody in their marketing department is a genius, because what they did is at the very beginning of the book, right before you hit chapter one, they say all, it's like architecture, historical facts, et cetera, and so forth are true. So what, what they were saying, what he was essentially saying is, I'm going to tell you a fictional story of a, a, uh, a scholar trying to solve a crime in Rome, and he uncovers this conspiracy that hides the true identity of Jesus. And so what Dan Brown was essentially saying was, the story about Jesus is true, in, in that he was married to Mary Magdalene and had children and all kinds of stuff. But the, 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 the way we uncover it is, is, is fiction. Okay, that that was the claim, and the world went crazy over it. And so, some of the findings are here: Jesus and Mary Magdalene were married with children. Uh, the Gnostic Gospels. We'll talk about Gnosticism here in a minute, but it's these lost scriptures, quote unquote, um, are the earliest Christian records. They actually said that they predated the four Gospels that we have, so they're you know they're more reliable. Christianity. Christianity stole most of its ideas from various pagan religions, okay? And you can debunk that seven days a week with no problem. And then Constantine uh, compiled the New Testament at Nicaea in 325 AD. And the problem with that is the Council of Nicaea had nothing to do with Scripture, had nothing to do with the canon. It was about the deity of Christ because there was a heretic named Arius, right? So this guy did not study history, <laughs> clearly did not know history. Scholars laugh at him all the time, but his ideas 
got into the psyche and the, the general fabric of the world, and we have to deal with the consequences all the time, okay? Um, so far, so good. I feel like I missed, I skipped something, but I'm not sure what. Good? Okay. So I wanted to hit a quote. Oh, sorry. Okay. So I want to give you a, a quote from the book. It kind of sums up the, the problem where, where, where people are coming from when they read this. And it's, uh, what it is, is there's a professor named Teabing who is talking to the, the uh, protagonist, uh, Robert Langdon? Something Langdon. Um, and uh, a, a, a lady that he's with named Sophia. Okay, Sophia is supposed to be a Christian. And she's kind of portrayed as being a little dense. Okay, And basically that represents us because we're, we're kind of dense. All right, so the professor Teabing says, the Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven, by a, a facts from heaven. The Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. Let me stop right there. Countless translations. What does that what what is a translation? goes from one language to another. We have Greek manuscripts that are from early 2nd century, um, and there might even be one from the Gospel of Mark that's, that's late 1st century, which is unheard of um, in terms of ancient manuscripts, the, the number of manuscripts that we have, the quality of the manus- manuscript, etc. So we have the original Greek, and we can take that original Greek and go straight into English, Right? But when you, you know, when I talk to people, I hear, it, I hear the, the, the phrase, it's been translated and retranslated so many times that we don't even know what it means anymore. And I'm like, what does that mean? Did you go from Greek to Swahili to French to English? I mean, you know, you, you, it, transla- it was translated one time, exactly one time. And so, you know, this idea of translations, additions, and revisions, again, we can go back. We're, we're, and we're trying to go back as far as we can to, um, to the original. Anyway, history has never had a definitive version of the book. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament, and yet only a relatively few were chosen for inclusion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John among them. Who chose which Gospels to include, Sophie asked. Aha, being burst in with enthusiasm, the fundamental irony of Christianity. The Bible as we know it today was collated by the pagan Romer uh, pagan Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. Okay, the dude has never opened an ancient history book. Clearly, he has no idea. I mean, this stuff is definitively, objectively false and can be demonstrated as such. Right, and I think poss- possibly the fourth fourth week we'll go through some of this. But um, so anyway, this is the kind of stuff that's gone into the world and then people are believing and even and then they lose track of whether or not they read it in a fiction book or not okay so all right so without further ado we'll actually get into some of these quote-unquote non-canonical gospels or lost scriptures okay everybody good so far you tracking with me is there any any question on why we're doing this are we good no okay all right um the one that most people hold up, it's the kind of the darling, uh, 
is uh, the Gospel of Thomas. And the book I'm handing around, the five Gospels, they're actually saying that the Gospel of Thomas is the one that should be included with the other four. <clears throat> now, <laughs> I love... Uh, so, so what um, the Gospel of Thomas is, is it's not a story, it's not a narrative. Because when, when we think of Gospel, we think of, of narrative, right? It's actually a list of about 114 supposed sayings by Christ. And they're completely out of context. And if you think about the sayings of Jesus, there's always a context there. He's always talking to, to a particular audience. There might be a series of miracles or something. But everything that he, he says is in context, so it can be interpreted um, appropriately. Okay, With this, there is no context. It's just a list of sayings. And, and we're going to go through some of them here, here in a few minutes. Okay. Um, but what I love about this, my favorite story was by uh, Wayne Grudem. And when he was, I believe he was at Trinity Evangelical Divinity Institute. No, seminary. TEDS. Trinity Evangelical Divinity Seminary. Right. Hold on one sec. And so Easter time rolled around, and there was a local um, newspaper writer, um, writer that wanted to uh, talk about the Gospel of Thomas. And so she called the, you know, the switchboard at, um, at Ted's, and they, they, they routed her over to, over to uh, uh, Wayne Grudem. And she said, you know, she introduced herself, and she said, yeah, I'm wanting to talk about the Gospel of Thomas and ask, you know, why it's not in the Bible. Are we going to put it in the Bible? You know, what, what, are, what are you thinking? And uh, so Dr. Grudem said, have you, uh, have you ever read the Gospel of Thomas? And she said, no. And so he opened, up, um, opened it up. He said, I happen to have a copy right here. Because one of the first questions she asked is, are you familiar with it? And he's like, well, yeah, of course. Um, it's not like a secret thing or anything. It's just nobody cares. At least they shouldn't care. And so he read, see, let me jump through these real quick. Put this out of order. <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah, the bottom one. He read 114. It says, Simon Peter said to them, Make Mary leave us, for females don't deserve life. Jesus said, Look, I will guide her to make her male, so that she, she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males. For every female who makes herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. So when he read that, he said, she just said, oh, thank you for your time, and hung up the phone. And that was the end of the conversation. So I love that because if you want to shut somebody up, open the Gospel of Thomas and show it to them. Okay? So let's go through a handful of these things. Um, number one, and the, the writing number is over to the left, just like we would do a verse or something. Again, there's 114 of them. And he said, whoever discovers the interpretation of these sayings will not taste death. Okay, so the idea here is, is whoever discovers the interpretation of these sayings um, will, will be saved, right? So salvation comes by knowledge. Knowledge, right? Understanding these things, okay? The knowledge being revealed to you is what saves you, not, grace, not by grace through faith, okay? So... Um, this is what you refer to as Gnosticism, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, Gnostic, 
um, is the idea, I was thinking this morning, how, how deep do I want to go down this rabbit hole? Because it is a weird, weird religion. Um, completely antithetical to, to Judaism. Okay? Completely different creation narrative and all that. And in fact, the Gnostics believed that uh, Yahweh was an evil, um, like, lesser god that, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a bizarre thing that has really, it's very, very antithetical to, to Judaism, okay? But they, fundamentally, they believe that um, uh, spirit is good, material is bad. So the human body is bad, um, human spirit is, is good, and the way that you're saved is you come to, to knowledge, okay? Um, and so, because of that, they, were, they said that uh, Jesus did not actually take on a human body. Okay? So in other words, he wasn't fully human, because if you don't have a body, you're not fully human. So he didn't take on a, a, a human body. Um, he was like more uh, appeared to be a human body. So he's like an apparition or something. Okay? So pure heresy from, from the get-go. And I could go, uh, again, their creation narrative is the most bizarre thing you've ever heard in your life. Um, they must have been with Muhammad in the cave sucking on the, on the methane. So, all right, so number four. Um, Jesus said, the older person won't hesitate to ask a little seven-day-old child about the place of life, and they'll live because many who are first will be last and they'll become one. Now, clearly I'm not saved because I have no idea what he's talking about. Okay? Um. Number seven, Jesus said, Blessed is the lion that eats, <laughs> blessed is the lion that's eaten by a human and that becomes human, but how awful for the human who's eaten by a lion and the lion becomes human. Okay, now you know why Bill and Ted are here. Whoa. Okay. Um, one th- a detail I forgot to leave out is. This was written in um, a language called uh, Coptic. And what Coptic does is it takes, by and large, uh, the Egyptian language, but rather than hieroglyphics, it uses uh, Greek characters. So it's kind of like a, a hybrid between um, Egyptian and, and, and Greek. And so when I read this, I feel like it was kind of interpreted or you know, maybe translated and retranslated or something, um, and like there was like a lot lost in translation because this, this is just I mean they have weird weird stuff there. Like I said, whoa. Um, number ten, Jesus said, "I've cast fire on the world, and look, I'm watching over it until it blazes." Then he said, "This heaven will disappear, and the one above it will disappear too. Those who are dead aren't alive." Whoa. Uh, and those who are living won't die. In the days when you ate what was dead, you made it alive. When you're in the light, what will you do? On the day when you were one, you became divided, but when you became divided, what will you do? Should we? Should Ken preach on that next week? What do you think? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, four weeks on that. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is one of those, it's kind of like one hand clapping sort of thing, you know. Um, the disciples said to Jesus, uh, we know you're going to leave us. Who will lead us then? Jesus said to them, wherever you are, you'll go to James the just for whom heaven and earth came into being. You know, it's all of a sudden James the just is, I don't know, the, the reason. I, I don't know, Colossians might have something to say about that. But, um, and then we already read 114. So as you can see, it is... Bizarro world has no; it does not belong in our canon. And oh, by the way, it was written pretty definitively after 175 A.D. And we know that because there was a guy um, named Tatian who wrote a a work called the Diatessaron, which is what he was what he was trying to do is harmonize the four Gospels. So, number one in 175 A.D., we know that there were four Gospels, and so. He, uh, he wanted to harmonize them, to put them together kind of like in one story, right? And so he had some, some amalgamation, some odd, um, odd wording in, in, in places. And some of that odd wording in some of the, the uh, sayings of Jesus ends up here in the Gospel of Thomas. And so the idea is that um, whoever wrote the Gospel of Thomas had access to uh, the Diatessaron, which was written in, in 175 AD. So this would have been written, you know, Gospel of Thomas would have been 150 years after, after the crucifixion, after the, after the cross. Yes? Are they trying to claim that this is from Thomas the disciple? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's what's called a pseudepigrapha, false writing, and what those are are writings that are falsely attributed to, to other people. And we're going to talk about those a lot when we talk about the Apocrypha. All right. Um, now, the infancy gospel of Thomas is a completely different thing. It has nothing to do with the gospel of Thomas. Okay? So now let's look at um, some examples here. <clears throat> I think there's only two, two or three slides here. All right, so this is a narrative. And what it talks about, it <clears throat> kind of, I think they try to fill in some of the gaps <clears throat> around, you know, what was Jesus like as a child? Have you ever wondered that? I've wondered that too, you know. I mean, if he was playing baseball, would he have a thousand batting average and, you know, uh, hit a home run every time? I mean, what what would that be like? Did he make a hundred in every on every test? I mean, it, it's just it's you can think about it, but whatever you do, don't land on a on a conclusion, other than we we can't know, right? Well, what these folks did was, I guess, tried to fill in some of the gaps, and there's probably some legends. I I don't really know where it came from. From there he was going, this is Jesus, from there Jesus was going with his father Joseph and someone running struck his shoulder. So a, a child was running and, and ran into Jesus' shoulder. And Jesus said to him, cursed be, uh, cursed be you because of your leader. And immediately he died. And the people who saw that he had died immediately cried out and said, from where was this child born that his word becomes deed? And when the parents of the dead child saw what had happened, they blamed Joseph, his father, saying, from wherever you have this child, you can't live with us in this village. If you want to be here, uh, teach him to bless and not to curse. Because our uh, sorry, um, child has been taken away from us. And Joseph said to Jesus, why do you say such things? And they suffer and hate us. 
And the child said to Joseph, Since you know wise words, you're not ignorant of where they came from, and they won't be raised, and these will uh, receive their punishment. And immediately, those accusing him became blind, and Joseph took took Jesus' ear and pulled hard. And Jesus said to him, It's enough for you to seek and find me, and not beyond that, to scourge me by um, having taken on a natural ignorance. You haven't clearly seen me, why, um, why, I'm, why I'm yours. Uh, look, I've been subdued before you. I mean, so Jesus, a kid runs into Jesus, and he said, okay, you're dead. You know, and then Joseph comes out, and he's like, hey, you know, why are you doing this? And then he takes him by the ear. Does that sound like the Lord of the universe? Does that sound like a sinless child to you? No. It's, it's a ridiculous story that's one of these uh, heralded, heralded um, gospels. Um, another quick story. And again, after many days, Jesus was playing with other children on a certain roof of an upstairs room. But one of the children fell and died. And the other children saw this and went into their houses and they left Jesus alone. And the parents of the child who died came and accused Jesus, saying, You pushed down our child. But Jesus said, I didn't push him down. And they were raging and shouting. Jesus came down from the roof and stood beside the body and cried out in a loud voice, saying, Zeno, Zeno, because this was uh, his name. Rise and say whether I pushed you down. And the kid rose and said, No, sir. And they saw and were amazed. And again, again, Jesus said to him, Fall asleep. And the parents of the child praised God, and, and worship the child. So kid falls off the roof, dies. They blame Jesus. He said, no, I didn't do it. Here, be, you know, come alive. You know, Lazarus, come to me, that sort of thing. And the kid says, uh, you know, and he says, did I push you off the roof? The kid says, no. He says, okay, thank you, you're dead again. You know, it's, it's, it's silly. It's, it's just silly, um, Okay, Gospel of Peter. This is the last one. Gospel of Peter. So, not only do people try to fill in gaps with, of Jesus' youth, they also try to fill in gaps of another really big part, which is the resurrection. Because think about it. You don't see the resurrection. They don't report on the resurrection. They report on what ha- the empty tomb, basically, right? And so, over the years, people wonder, what would this have been like? Curiosity. So, the Gospel of Peter says, okay, we're going to, we'll solve this problem. We'll tell you exactly what the resurrection was like. By the way, it wasn't written by Peter. But in the night in which the Lord's day dawned, when the soldiers were safeguarding it two by two in every watch, there was a loud voice in heaven. And they saw that the heavens were opened, and the two males um, who had much radiance had come down from there and come near the sepulchre. I can never say that word. But that stone, which had been thrust against the door, having rolled by itself, went a distance off the side. And the sepulchre, (laughs) I can never say that word, opened, and both of the young men entered. And so those soldiers, having seen, uh, awakened by the, awakened the centurion and the elders, for they too were present safeguarding. And while they were relating what they had seen again, the, they see three males who have come out from the sepulcher with the, how do you say that word? Sepulcher. Sepulcher. 
sepulcher, sepulcher, I, I can never, I, I, I don't know. And while they were rela- relating what they had seen, again, the three males who had come out of that thing, with the two supporting the other one, and a cross following them. Three people walk out, and there's a cross following them. And the head of the two reaching unto heaven, really tall, uh, but th- that of one being led out by a, hand, by a hand by them going beyond the heavens. So it's even taller. And they were hearing a voice from the heavens saying, Have you made proclamation to the fallen asleep? And then obeisance uh, was heard from the cross, yes. So we have this speaking cross. So we have these, like, I guess they're angels come in, their heads reach all the way to the heavens, and so they come out, and the cross is like, I guess, floating behind them or something. And then when the question is asked from heaven, have you preached to those um, in hell, essentially, or who have fallen asleep, um, the cross replies yes. So again, that does not seem quite biblical to me, okay? Um, So again, what I want to repeat time and time again is these things are not worthy of being in the Bible. They're not true. They're not inspired. Um, And then when we talk about the formation of the New Testament canon, um, we're going to talk about why we can be confident that the four that we have are the four that we have, you know, are the, the right ones, basically, okay? Next week, we're going to get into the Apocrypha, which is, like I said, it's um, kind of uh, additional writings from the, the Old Testament. Um, Old Testament times, well, I can't even really say Old Testament time. Between Malachi and Matthew, okay? It's writings that occurred ar- around that time. Some of them are very profitable for us to read. So, for example, First and Second Maccabees are um, histories of the... Um, uh, the Jewish revolt uh, against Rome. And so if you heard of the, the Hasmoneans or the, the Maccabees or Judas Maccabeus or any of those things, these are um, uh, profitable for reading in, in terms of being historical accounts of what's going on. Now, can we trust them? Really trust them? Well, they're not Scripture, you know, clearly, um, but I think they are profitable for reading. Um, some of the other ones, like Judith and Tobit, I think are profitable to kind of understand what people were thinking in that time. But again, we don't want to get our doctrine out of it because they're not inspired either. Okay, And so we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more next week. And we'll talk about the Septuagint and kind of all these different categories of writings and stuff. So um, actually... Thought I was going to struggle getting done on time, but I'm done a little bit early. So, any questions or thoughts? I'm sorry, I, I talked the whole time. I didn't ask any questions. I don't normally like to do that. Yes, ma'am. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's not the Jesus that we hear in the other 66 books of the Bible. Absolutely, absolutely. It really does. And um, so it's not the character of Jesus. And then, so let's think for a minute about the character of the miracles. Um, 
I'm sorry, I'm from Texas. I was supposed to say miracles. Um, so if you think about every miracle that occurred in, in the four Gospels, what was their purpose? What's that? They, they glorified God. They were somehow, some way. I mean, G- Jesus, there was a, a widow, um, a widow who lost her son. There was like a funeral procession, and Jesus raised, you know, raised the, the widow's son. And it said his, you know, he had compassion on her, right? But still, you look in that section, uh, that section, there's teaching around that. And so there's, like Stuart said, there, he, he's glorifying God in everything that, he, that he's doing. So when you look at just the flippant manner of the miracles, so-called miracles that occurred in these Gnostic Gospels, they don't glorify God at all, and they make Christ look like a, a childish child. You know, they really do. Um, there's another one where, um, in the infancy gospel of Thomas, where Jesus is playing in the mud with some friends, and he's, he's making, like, little uh, pigeons or something, something, some bird. I think it was a pigeon. Um, and, but it was on the Sabbath, and he, so he wasn't supposed to do that. And so I think a Pharisee or something comes by and gets on him about it, and he just claps his hands, and they turn into, like, real pigeons and fly away, you know? Okay, well, what, what's the teaching value of that? How is God glorified in, in that, that sort of thing, okay? And so, um, you know, it's, I mean, it's just, again, if there's any questions, just read them, you know? Um, Jesus said, uh, my sheep hear my voice. I do not hear Jesus' voice in the Gospel of Thomas, I assure you of that, so, all right? Randy, can you close us? Thank you. Now, on the fourth week, we're going to have a little bit of wiggle room, I think, in terms of time. So if there's any questions, objections, concern, whatever, around that has to do with, with Scripture or the Bible, um, if you let me know, I'll work that into uh, the, the lesson in the fourth week. All right? Cool. All right. Y'all have a great day.